You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today we're talking about cattails, the genus Typha. And cattails are some of those plants that even non-biologically oriented people can probably readily pick out of a lineup. They're very iconic in pictures of ponds and wetlands around the globe. And I was actually surprised to learn that they're more diverse than what I grew up understanding as a cattail. But as you're going to hear today, there's even more diversity of these plants, and it's causing problems in areas where they aren't native. Joining us from Northeastern Illinois University is Dr. Pam Geddes, and she's going to talk to us about invading cattails and hybrid swarms. It's really cool work. I actually got to see her deliver a seminar, and it just blew my mind because I've taken these plants for granted for way too long, and I thought I had the picture kind of sorted out in my head. And that is definitely not the case. There's a lot of mystery surrounding these plants. And it's really important work because, as you're going to hear, it has a lot of implications for wetland health and biodiversity in general. So let's just jump right into it. Here is my conversation with Dr. Pamela Geddes. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Pam Geddes, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Yes, Matt, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm originally from Argentina, um, a country in South America, and um, I came to the U.S. in 1993. I was studying biology there, and so eventually I made it to uh, where I am today. I'm an associate professor of biology and environmental science in the environmental science program at Northeastern Illinois University. It's a primarily teaching institution. Um, It's a public institution in Chicago. And um, I teach, I do research, and I do service at that institution. Wonderful. And you obviously are here because this is a plant podcast. Were you always a plant person or is this something you kind of came to later on? I think as far as I can remember, I I started my undergraduate studies in Argentina, and I remember my first experience with volunteering in a lab had to do with plants. So since I, as far as I can remember, I've been always a plant person. So, so this is perfect. (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I like to hear those stories because, you know, myself included, a lot of us came to it later. And so to, to meet people that have always kind of recognized plants as being interesting and important, it's like, well done. My head is off to you. <laughs> yeah. For for me, it was actually something very, very exciting because um, in Argentina, I live I lived near a coastal area in um, Bahia Blanca, and um, there was a, a endangered species, Neospartum darwinii, and it was a, a species that was described by Darwin in one of his trips. So um, it was, as an undergraduate, that really, really caught my attention. I, I couldn't believe I was working on a plant that he had discovered, he had, you know, um, described. That's when it started. And I did mostly plant morphology and anatomy. But it was really, really great to go out to the areas in the sand dunes of the coastal areas of, of Bahia Blanca, where some of the relic populations remained. Oh, that's really neat. I bet that, yeah, I can see why that would 
kind of spark something in a, in a young mind, especially one that's interested in evolution and biology and, and asking sorts of questions along those lines. That's exciting. Yeah. Very cool. So you're here today because you, you gave a presentation on cattails, and I think a lot of people listening will be familiar with cattails or have at least seen them in one form or another, but how did you come to work on this group of plants? Yeah, this is an interesting question because I came to it as a tangent. It wasn't hmm. it was never my intention to work on cattails. I was interested in how different plant species would affect ecosystem functioning in in wetlands. And lo and behold, one of the the most aggressive invaders in in several of the wetlands in the Midwest happened to be a specific set of species of cattails. So when I when I started doing, I, I worked um, during my postdoc at Loyola University of Chicago. This is where, when I started basically concentrating on cattails, I just wanted to figure out if there was a difference in how ecosystems functioned in terms of nutrient cycling. If an area of a wetland was invaded by invasive species, you know, namely some cattails, but it could be other uh, plants, reed canary grass or phragmites. But also compared to a native community of, of plants, of wetland plants. And when I was trying to set up that study, I realized that the cattails were not all the same. And I would travel, the, my, my postdoc was done in, um, the, the field work was done at uh, Cowles Bog in Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore. Oh, cool. Right. And I was detecting morphological differences of the different populations depending on what site I was sampling. And so I said, okay, maybe we're talking about invasive species in general versus native species, but but there was something a little bit deeper than that. There were some differences even within the cattail invasive population. There were differences that were sort of emerging to the naked eye. And I started doing a little bit of research to try to make sure I was calling the cattails the right thing. Hmm. And that's where the nightmare began. Oh boy. Um, because it, it was very, very hard for me to be able to say, okay. I know there's three different species in the Midwest. There's Typha latifolia, or the broadleaf cattail, Typha angustifolia, the narrow-leaved cattail, and then when they hybridize, they, they meet each other, they hybridize, they produce the Typha exglauca, which is the hybrid cattail. And the hybrid cattail is the one that's the most aggressive. So it was fairly clear, you know, by looking at other things, and I started looking and observing a little bit more about the dynamics of, of, of the, the spreads of these cattails, that there were other differences in in how invasive they were, but morphologically, if you if you look at a, some uh, keys, the major things that people in the field look at, and I'm and I'm going to make that clear, without any microscopes, without any um, having to process any samples, you look at two major things: how wide the leaf is in the different cattail species, and how big is the gap between the two inflorescences. So the, the male inflorescence is on top. Each inflorescence has about um, between 200,000 to half a million flowers. Whoa. And the female inflorescence is at the bottom. And so these look like the hot dogs of a typical cattail that you see on the side of the road. Usually what you end up seeing is the female inflorescence. That's what remains. The, the male inflorescence is very fragile. And um, once the pollen is shed, it basically disintegrates. Mm. So so by looking at those two features, how wide the leaves were and what the gap between the female and male inflorescence was, I wasn't able to distinguish. It seemed like I was looking at things that were completely overlapping. 
And so that's sort of, you know, besides the question of ecosystem functioning and, and all that, I started to be fascinated by this set of species and, and how can they be different species and yet they're hybridizing and, and the morphology was just overlapping. So so I decided to, to try to see if I could figure a little bit out of, of what was happening using molecular tools. Wow. And that's really interesting that this was kind of sort of just a, a, a progress that you didn't intend to, or at least you stumbled upon this and realized how many more fundamental questions there actually were. Because when you're thinking about ecosystem function and invasive species, it really helps to know which ones are native, which ones aren't, and which ones are hybrids. And to to be able to identify them is, is one of the biggest first steps. And as you so wonderfully put it in the beginning, that's kind of where the nightmare begins. And so this is really fundamental work to start actually being able to ask the questions you originally set out to ask. Right. And one of the things that really got me thinking about this is, okay, if I can identify, if I have either a native species of cattail or an exotic species of cattail, I'm not going to be able to conclude if ecosystem functioning is affected differently by a native or an exotic species, (laughs) besides all the other native plant communities, which I found that the native cattail, it's really good at basically coexisting with a lot of the other native species, a lot of ferns, a lot of diversity is found in areas that have the native cattail, typhalodifolia. And that is not true when you find mostly stands of Typha angustifolia or Typha glauca. They end up somehow eliminating a lot of the native biodiversity. So yes, it was a very simple question. Can I identify what I have in front of me and to then be able to, to basically conclude about how those species would affect ecosystem functioning? Yeah, very important. And obviously this has sort of consumed a lot of your research interests and that's for good reason. But Backing up a little bit and thinking about cattails as a whole, where did these other two species come from? Or, I mean, we at least know one's a hybrid, but we do have a native one, and you said it gets along, and there's there's a niche for it here, but then there's there's this other one that came over. Did it get here intentionally? Where did it come from? You know, what's kind of the backstory on this? Yeah, and this is a great question because that it, by itself, it's another set of pieces that have not been uh, well put together. There's <laughs> There's some evidence... So depending on what references you look at in the literature, a lot of people suggest that this is a European. Typha angustifolia, the narrow-leaved cattail, is an European species that presumably came to the United States on the eastern seaboard with um, European settlement. So, So part of the issue there is that we have assumed that this is an exotic species that invaded in the 1600s. Th- that is an, an issue that we had assumed for a long, long time. There's a couple of people and a a couple of research groups, I should say, that have been looking at pollen um, records. And the evidence suggests that depending on on what you're really looking at, and this is another one of those black boxes, Mm -hmm. looking at pollen as remnants from previous times can be a tricky um, research endeavor just because what you're finding has to be calibrated with, with other things. And so by looking at pollen grains in sediment cores in soils, um, a couple of groups of, of people, of, of researchers, have found that Typha angustifolia perhaps has been here all along. So um, people that are against that point of view argue that you can't really tell apart the pollen of the Typha angustifolia, the cattail, versus another plant that's related to it, Sparganium. Oh. So so there's a lot, the, the jury's still out there. Um, we still don't have solid evidence to suggest one way or the other. 
However, the way that I think about it is regardless of where it came from, it's evident by just looking at the distribution of uh, Typha angustifolia, this presumably exotic species, that it behaves invasively. And this is where some of these alternative definitions about invasive species may become handy. Native species can become invasive, basically meaning that they can start growing very aggressively and they may actually be affecting an ecosystem as if they were from a completely different area as exotic species usually do. So even though we don't have evidence to suggest either way, um, my sense is that perhaps, yes, it has been here all along. However, somehow it has spread in such a way that we consider its spread being invasive. And so it, it basically decim decimates or, or reduces the native biodiversity of, of wetlands once it basically uh, reaches those, those areas. I'm really happy you brought that point up because it makes such a good distinction for those that like to give pushback on this invasive species issue and kind of viewing all species as, well, if they're growing here, that's not a bad thing. And when you think about it from a scientific and especially from a conservation perspective, it's it's really about the behavior that you mentioned, whether it's native or not, something has changed, or at least we've done something that suddenly it's now growing or doing something to the detriment of diversity as a whole or ecosystem function as a whole. And that's really where the jumping off point is, is for these sorts of scientific investigations and conservation endeavors is how is this plant or animal even behaving in the context of the whole ecosystem? And, and if it's really starting to harm function, that's when we have a problem. Right. And I think you you brought up a, a, a fantastic point. So so what we see from the pollen record, even if, you know, let's assume that, you know, the plant has been here forever. It's a it's, it's a plant that's native to the United States. We see in the pollen record that there's an explosion of, you know, of, of that pollen availability. So the concentration of, of pollen uh, per gram soil goes up really, really high during the, the early 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And so it indicates that as we see a lot more globalization and, and you know, development, we see that there's an increase in, in the, the thriving of this particular species. So it may be related to human disturbance. And even though it's a native species and it was totally fine, some of the anthropogenic activities have actually led to its booming and becoming and, and behaving invasively. So this is a species that's certainly benefited from the hand of man, whether that's if it was translocated in the first place or it's because it found a niche where we were disturbing and disrupting wetland communities or creating human activity right. sort of things. Yeah. And one of the, the major things that, that people tend to talk about is um, there's some some early records that indicate that Typha angustifolia, the, the exotic or native that behaves invasively, has become so predominant after we started salting roads because it has a wider tolerance for salinity. And so... We know that, you know, starting in the on the eastern seaboard, it has migrated westward in, in the country. And in many of these cases, you find an increase in salting of roads as a de-icer in, in, in winter conditions. So, so that's one of the anecdotal ways. Um, there may be a lot of others. People that argue that it came with European settlement um, assume that they were used, the, the leaves are really tough and fibrous. And so they have been used in many, many um, instances for basket weaving, mm. for fiber content, but they're also edible. So the rhizomes are edible. The pollen usually makes a really good addition to any type of flower. And I actually had a, 
a faculty member in my department that brought me a bunch of pollen that he collected. And he actually made pasta with, with some of the, the pollen Whoa. from cattails in general. We didn't really know exactly what species he had collected pollen from. Um, it wasn't very tasteful, actually. It wasn't very tasty. So, um, but but it's interesting because these plants have had a very important niche in Native American culture. A lot of um, the, the the references to these plants put it in a very prominent ethnobotanical situation where um, the plant has been used widely for many different uses, including uh, not only food but shelter and um, uh, decorative pieces such as basket weaving and, and other things like that. Wow. So this is something that humanity has sort of had a long history with, both native and exotic, and and has many different uses for. Um, But unfortunately, often what our value system seems to center on isn't necessarily what's good for ecology and ecosystems as a whole. But in thinking about how this trajectory sort of changed when you realized that you needed to start considering what was going on here with different species, potential hybrids, what was really the the next step for you to take with this research? I mean, where did you go from there, uh, and how did you go from there? Right. So, so the the first thing that we started thinking about is: is there any other way that we could find out what each species is? Can we more reliably, um, without looking at morphology, you know, get to what species we're dealing with? I, I think. Um, you mentioned it at the beginning, from a conservation standpoint, which eventually this is what I hope my research can inform, can we decide what species to eliminate and which ones to advocate for? So, you know, perhaps the native species, which may be struggling, that's the one that we need to pay attention to. And we should eliminate perhaps the, 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 the glauca, which is the hybrid one, or even the angustifolia if it's behaving invasively. Yet, if we can't recognize what we're dealing with, there's no action that we can initiate just because we we don't know what we're dealing with. So at that particular point, it became clear that molecular analyses, analyses that are based on the plant's DNA, would potentially be a lot more promising than just looking at the morphology. Now, I always highlight the fact that I still rely on morphology. Morphology is such a natural way for us to classify things in nature. And you know, you go to the plant, you look at the plant, and your your mind is instantly making connections of how wide is the leaf, what is the gap between the inflorescence. And so the, the morphological ID never came something obsolete, and I still to this point use it to start thinking about what kind of population I'm looking at. Yet I always go back to the molecular analysis to try to see what we're getting out of that analysis. And um, in short, I don't know if you want me to go into the specifics of of what we do in terms of uh, looking at their DNA. Sure. Is that yeah, yeah, let's something? hear it. So we look at non-coding regions of DNA. Basically, they don't have any specific purpose, um, to put it in a, in, a, in a more colloquial way. Um, these sequences of DNA are repeating so, for example, we may have two nucleotides repeating, for example, AT, 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 AT for a, a certain length. And we call these repeating regions of the DNA microsatellites. And microsatellites have been very helpful at identifying species because they're inherited. And it's very easy for when DNA is replicating to make very, very small mistakes. And those mistakes get 
perpetuated as, as, as plants continue to reproduce in, in multiple generations. So it's, a, it's an important tool for us to, to see differences in how long those microsatellite sequences are. So by looking and counting at those repeats of different nucleotides, we may be able to say, this is one species, the native, this is the other species, the presumably exotic. If there's a signature that has both molecular signatures from the native and the exotic, that means it's a hybrid because we know they, they, they basically cross and hybridize. And so that hybrid inherits one microsatellite from the one parent and the other one from the other parent. So the method seems very straightforward. It's just that we're dealing with a lot of machines and a lot of um, DNA extraction, which has proven challenging because cattails are so, they have so much fibrous material. So it's very hard to sort of break up the cell walls to be able to get the DNA out um, and do the analyses. So what we end up doing is we we use um, either dry ice or liquid nitrogen. And this is the, the part that my students, I, I have to say that a lot of the work that I do couldn't be possible mm-hmm. without the fantastic students that are in my lab, mostly undergraduates that spend hours um, grinding up plant tissue, cattail tissue, to the point that we make it into a powder. And then that, at very cold temperatures, allows the cell walls to break up. And then we can go with commercial uh, DNA extraction kits to extract the, the DNA, put it in solution, and then we we basically try different primers or different sequences that, if present, will basically give us a signature for what we're looking for. What an interesting challenge with the physical structure of it being so tough. Right. And these are the things that I tell my students that research sometimes seems so straightforward until, you know, you realize that you're up against a lot of different hurdles. I started in my during my postdoc um, because I was doing this research and I had no idea what kind of cattail species I was dealing with. When I did an experiment, I, I translocated several rhizomes from the field into a mesocosm experiment. And so I only had the rhizome. So I decided I was going to take a, a rhizome sample to extract DNA. Little did I know that it took me about a summer to extract DNA from the rhizome and the DNA yield was very, very low. Uh-oh. And so um, I had no other way of, of extracting DNA by getting leaf samples. And so I had to sort of restart the, the project to try to go back and piece together where I had gotten the samples and trying to get um, leaf material. And even the leaf material we try to go for the very, very um, new shoots and new leaves that are in the center at the center of the plant, mostly because those are the ones that are less, they're kind of brand new and, and softer. So the grinding process usually is, is a lot better to, to get the, the DNA yield that we need to. Mm. So that's fun in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. So that's a, that's a big preliminary part. So even getting the DNA, it's challenging. I, I'm trying... After doing a lot of this research, I realized that there's a lot of interest out there for people to find out what they have. And so I've been known to, you know, as the cat lady uh, <laughs> to try, to, you know, people try to give me samples to analyze. And, and, and I have a very small lab, so I'm always kind of at max capacity. But, but I've tried. I, I welcome all the samples because it has allowed us to sort of improve the technique. One thing that I'm dealing with right now is that I have a collaborator in Argentina that actually wants to send me samples. And the easiest way to send samples internationally is to have them dry. And so you can dry them either in, uh, as a herbarium specimen or you can dry them with silica gel. 
And so silica gel seemed like a, such an easy and straightforward way of doing this, except that we're not being very successful at extracting DNA. For some particular reason, the DNA yield when you dry the samples is very low, even though all the material is there. And so we're, we're figuring out as we speak ways of, of increasing the yield of DNA. And, and if this doesn't work, we may have to go with a herbarium drying style of, of, so that I, I'm able to, to get that DNA and, and I, I'm able to run the samples in my lab. Hmm. So even then, I mean, getting past the, the difficulty of getting the DNA, obviously you've had some success and, and you've started to analyze what does make these plants different? I mean, has it been overall successful? Is this something that, what, what have you found, I guess, is the real question I'm trying to get at. Sure. Yeah. And so um, we have been extremely successful with extracting from leaf material. And so I'm in the process of finishing up a manuscript that took much longer than I anticipated, just because we have so many samples and so many groups of undergraduates working on the project. So pulling it all together is, is proving to be a lot more challenging than I thought it was going to be. Um, but this is basically uh, the culmination of a collection of about 180 samples of cattails that are spread out in about 39 different populations in about seven Midwestern states. And so um, we have samples from Minnesota. We have samples from a lot from Illinois, a lot from Wisconsin, a lot from Indiana. There's a few from Iowa and uh, a couple from North Dakota. Those 180 samples have been processed. And what we're finding is that, first of all, the major research question had to do with what species are we finding in the Midwest? We, it was clear from, from my, my work in Indiana and in Indiana Dunes that we had more than one species of cattail. And I wanted to make sure that I was being true to the fact that that diversity existed and mm. that I could pick it up morphologically, but I wasn't, I wasn't comfortable saying exactly what species it was. So part of the project extended into finding out what kinds of species do we have in the Midwest? Can we find evidence of hybridization between latifolia and angustifolia? And so when we started doing the molecular work, we soon realized that we had very few of the pure species. So for example, out of those 180 samples, um, we found that Typha latifolia, the native cattail, was only about 11% of those samples. Oh, whoa. The exotic, presumably exotic Typha angustifolia uh, was about 5% of those samples. We found that the hybrids were about 17 to 20% of the samples, but the majority of the samples were what we called, what we ended up calling advanced generation hybrids. Huh. So imagine that you have a latifolia finding an angustifolia, those two species cross and hybridize, and they give rise to Typha glauca. For a long time, the hybrid cattail had been presumably thought of as a uh, sterile species. So we thought, okay, it's sterile, that's it. We don't have a big problem. Yet we did have a big problem, even though it may have been sterile because these plants reproduce asexually. So they, they have rhizomes underground that can um, spread laterally and they, they shoot different shoots up. Mm -hmm. And so you end up with multiple clones of the same plant um, in, 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 a, in a particular area. So because we thought they were sterile, looking at molecular signatures allowed us to 
open up a different can of worms, so to speak, because we were finding evidence, and this has not been, it had been done already by other researchers in the, in the Midwest, that found that Typha X Glauca, the hybrid, was actually not sterile. It was pretty fertile. Ooh. And it was back crossing to either parent. So a Typha Glauca, a hybrid cattail, could back cross to the Latifolia parent or the Angustifolia parent, or it could potentially cross with another Glauca hybrid. Wow. And so that level of introgression, we had no idea what we were going to find. And we had always underestimated the hybridization potential of these particular cattail species. And so what we're finding through using these molecular tools is that about 70% of all the samples that we find in the Midwest are advanced generation hybrids. So that means that introgression or this hybridization and backcrossing to parent parental species was actually pretty rampant in, in, in many of the populations of the Midwest. Now, the, the beauty of, of these microsatellites, the, these molecular tools that we were using in my lab, is that they can allow you to find out if the, the plants are actually backcrossing to one parent or the other, or if it's just too much of a genetic mess that you can't really tell. Yeah. And so if you look at those advanced generation hybrids, that about 70% of those samples will look more closely into those, the majority are backcrossing to the native parent, about 44% of them, meaning that somehow the native species is at this, what we call potential threat of extinction by hybridization. If we continue having hybrid cattails backcrossing to the native parent preferentially, we may be losing the integrity of, of the native species, which is the one that presumably we want to protect just because it's the one that gets along well with other um, wetland plants, but also because it's it's potentially the iconic cattail that you see in so much of the literature that it's in, in many, many different wetlands. I always joke that all the children's books that are showing frogs or wetlands or ponds, they have an iconic cattail behind them in, in, the, in the illustrations. And, and I always say that that's probably the native cattail because there's only one or two of those. And so, and there's a lot of other plant diversity with them. <laughs> this is completely non-scientific, but I, I'm hoping that that's the way it is. And that's the way we, we think of healthy ecosystems, healthy wetlands with having a biodiversity of wetland plants that help those wetlands ecosystem-wise. So, so functioning in, 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 a, in, a, in a way that allows those wetlands to be pretty healthy in terms of ecosystem health. So, so going back to my numbers, so we said that about 70% of all those samples that we had collected were advanced generation hybrids, meaning that um, many had backcrossed to the native parent, a few had backcrossed to the um, angustifolia or the exotic parent. But then we found that about half of them, 45%, we couldn't really tell. There were signatures, molecular signatures from all the different species. So we, at, at one point that breaks down. And so we can't, we can't say that it backcrossed to one or the other. It may be repeated introgressions that we end up with a, what we call a genetic nightmare. And, and, and basically the, the whole concept of species sort of collapses. What are we, you know, if these plants are breaking the barrier of sexual reproduction, are we really talking about species or are we talking about these suites of, of, of species to put it, you know, like that's the only way that I can think of that are potentially transposing a boundary that, that we have thought of as being, you know, uncrossable. We can't cross that boundary. Well, plants are pretty promiscuous and, and they can do this very efficiently. Wow. What an interesting conundrum that the, even just this initial discovery 
unfolded for you because not only are you dealing with the invasion aspect of it, the aggressiveness of it, and then the the loss of biodiversity and ecosystem function from these very important wetland habitats, but also this idea that you could be potentially losing a species, whether you know the jury's in or out on on what we where we drawn those lines, just from it kind of being swamped uh, and introgressing back into some sort of giant hodgepodge of genetic introgression, like you said, that's. That brings up a bunch of other conservation questions that then you have to kind of contend with. Right, right. And this is the part that really upsets uh, managers and and (laughs) restoration ecologists. Unfortunately, they look to me for answers. And the only thing I'm doing is I'm posing an even bigger problem. A lot of what the literature indicates, the conservation literature indicates is that hybrid swarms, which is what these are called when there's a really high level of introgression, is that, you know, there, there's not much that we can do about them. Yet, as people interested and advocates for the environment, we really want to be doing something. And so a lot of the managers and restoration ecologists are looking up to me to to find that particular answer. And unfortunately, I do not have the answer. But it's just that the fact that, you know, vigilance is something really, really important, because these plants reproduce very, very quickly, and they do not need sexual reproduction to expand. You know, I talked about them being, they can spread clonally. Um, sometimes eradication of these species when they are starting to invade a particular area, regardless of what you have, is what many managers decide to do. Yet, we still find that if you're eliminating the native species, you may be in this conundrum of, okay, you're you're trying to preserve the native species, yet you're eliminating it because at this point you don't know what you have and you're trying to avoid a much bigger problem. Once the 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 cattail populations expand to a to a particular point, and I don't know exactly what that threshold is, sometimes these these populations become intractable, meaning that the amount of money and resources in terms of herbiciding or potentially mowing, or, or even burning that restorationists have to do supersedes the amount, the budget that they have, and the and the, the the logistic power that they have to be dealing with these with these cattail populations. So in many cases, even though I want to introduce hope and say hopefully we can do something about it, um, I know that there's a stark reality from the people that are working in the field as to how overwhelming sometimes it feels. Many of these cattail populations can reach. Um, heights of about 12 to 13 feet wow. high. This is what I was dealing with in Indiana, Dunes National, National Lakeshore. So the sheer size of these populations, I mean, you would get lost very easily um, in these patches of, of cattail. And so it's not easy to also herbicide them because you can't really go with a sprayer. You need to go with an airplane. And, and basically, it has to be at a, at a scale that that is mostly prohibitive, given the funding situation that we have in many of these public areas. And um, so, so it becomes... It becomes a, a nightmare in, in many respects, first of all, identifying them, but then how to deal with whatever you have and how to try to sort out, do we need to remove the invasive? Do we need to remove the hybrid? Do we try to protect the native seed, for example? Do we need to be preserving the seed for the well-being of wetlands? Since we find that a lot of the ecosystem functioning of these wetland plants are allowing a lot of the filtering capabilities of these wetlands to purify water to to have a, a healthy ecosystem yeah and this again goes back to this whole idea is it's not even just about protecting a native species it's about 
protecting an entire ecosystem. And then even more anthropocentric, it's about protecting services that we benefit from and really can't afford to replace on our own dollar bill because so much of nature is doing this for free. Right. Absolutely. So part of this issue also links to the to the use of cattails as bioremediation um, agents. So a lot of the literature has suggested that because they grow so quickly, because they have this invasive nature, a lot of the cattails are planted in, in some treatment wetlands to try to remove either pollutants from the water and the sediments. And, and they've been very, very successful. Yet you, you, you're trying to struggle between these two really good traits about the plant. Well, they're, they're very successful at expanding and invading. And so they're overwhelming the native biodiversity. And yet they're providing an ecosystem service that we as humans value as really high because we need to do this bioremediation. And so a lot of the literature is out there still as to how do you deal with these two opposing um, functions and, and, and what do you end up doing? Is it better to just plant cattails everywhere because we're going to get potentially higher bioremediation? But then again, we're, we're basically altering native ecosystems to the point that they become not what they're supposed to be in, in many of these areas. I wanted to highlight another finding from the work that we've been doing in some of these Midwestern cattails because we have such a high number of samples. We were able to kind of correlate and, and find out and ask ourselves how accurate is our morphological identification now that we have data mm -hmm. on molecular signatures. And so m the bottom line is that we are on average about 75% of the time we're wrong in oh. what we're calling a cattail plant. And so this becomes kind of a, 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 a line of horror in, in many, in many uh, talks that I give because people rely very heavily on what the plants look like. Yeah. Um, morphologically, morphologically IDing them, and I'm only referring to the width of the leaf and the gap between the female and the male inflorescences. Just to let you know, there's a few other ways to look at um, what the plants could be. So you look at the actual flowers, you can look at the actual pollen grains. I still find that um, it's not a very clear cut and it requires a lot of either microscopes or preparation of the samples that becomes impractical when you're out in the field. Mm. And so I've been an advocate of trying to figure out just with these two features that you can readily see without even a magnifying glass out, out in the field, how does that relate to the to the the signature, the identity, molecular identity of the plant? And so we find that, for example, for for Glauca, for Typha X Glauca, the hybrid, where 78% of the time we're wrong. For Angustifolia, where 91% of the time we're wrong. And, and the most important issue here is that we're wrong because we're calling it either Angustifolia or the hybrid cattail, when in fact it's an advanced generation hybrid. Our eyes cannot detect minute differences in that, you know, repeated hybridization pro processes or introgression that the plants are going through. Right. So even though I'm an advocate for not getting rid of the morphological identification, I say that you have to take it with a grain of salt and you have to look at other things. Some things that have become um, helpful for me is looking at what other plants are growing in the same community where you have the cattails. So remember I said at the beginning that the native cattail is usually a good player and mm. usually coexists with a wide variety of, of native plants. And depending on where you are, that native list could be very different. But if there's quite a bit of biodiversity and there's not a choking sensation of having so many cattail plants around you, 
you potentially are dealing with one of the natives if this also corresponds with pretty wide width in leaf and no gap between the two inflorescences. We are actually correct the majority of the time. We're the most successful at being correct at identifying the native cattail morphologically. 27% of the time we're correct. So about 30% of the time we're, we're identifying them correctly. Hmm. And so this is important because our eyes are the first thing that we got in the field. We're looking at the plant. We're saying, okay, this looks like it could be a native species, yet looking at other things nearby may also help in that um, sort of a, from a more holistic ecosystem perspective, what is the community of plants looking like? Um, we have a wetland. If it's a monoculture of cattails, chances are is either the Typha angustifolia, the presumably exotic species, or it's the hybrid. So at some point, we may be able to see remnant populations of, of the native and the angustifolia, the exotic, or perhaps it's already hybridized so much that we can't really find the parental species as pure populations. Wow. That's a lot to take in. And again, until you do this sort of work, until you ask these sort of questions, it's it's anyone's guess, even though you've realized how inaccurate it can be sometimes, at least you have an idea. And I think from an ecosystem function and ecological and evolutionary standpoint, it's really intriguing that so much of what you're looking at, the vast majority of it are these back crosses, these advanced hybrids. And thinking about hybrid vigor, you would expect maybe the initial cross to combine half of each species and be super aggressive and the most successful. It is interesting to think about that. The ones that are doing the best, the ones that are spreading the most uh, and potentially doing the most damage are these ones that have back crossed to one or the other subsequently uh, more times. And and do you have any indication as to why those back crosses then do so much better or outperforming so frequently? Yeah. That's a that's an excellent question, and it's something that uh, you know in the future I'm hoping um, we can address. We in the scientific community, I'm hoping I could do this. I'm going to tell you what some of the challenges are in in cultivating these cattails. First of all, they're very very big. They tend to be very big, and so um, you need really big mesocosms. And I I tried it, and I was very effective at killing them. I don't know. I know what I did. I, I, I was using well water to to water them and the well water was contaminated with storm water from the city and oh no. it had a lot of uh, salt so so salt is something that that will kill them so but uh, you know it will kill everything else so it's not a very good solution to the cattail um, dilemma yeah however um i think the ideal situation would try would be to try to do these crosses and and then experimentally determine this hybrid bigger, we we see it very clearly in the in the first generation hybrids, Typha X Glauca. Yet, as you mentioned, we are seeing that they continue back crossing, and you know, evidently they're pretty successful. But there's no work today to sort of find out what exactly is it that makes them so successful. Mm. And so, um, we are lacking some of that information about. We know for one, for the the hybrid cattail, that it does much better in many different areas, much more so than the parental species. So, for example, if you're looking at water availability, the the hybrid can do very well in really dry areas and really, really wet areas. And so the 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 flexibility in terms of niches is a lot greater in the hybrid than in the parental species. Yet we lack the information to be able to know exactly what is it about these back crosses that's allowing these hybrids, advanced generation hybrids, to continue to be so successful. Wow. So that's something that I'm hoping 
we can address. And and just as a disclaimer, you know, I, I'm doing some of the work here in the Midwest. Um, there's another group in Canada that's that's doing similar work, and and um, they they have found very similar um, results to what we're finding. And and the idea is these plants are very. There's 37 species recognized species of cattails worldwide. Oh wow! The United States has only four that are here. So the three in the Midwest, Latifolia, our native. Angustifolia, which presumably may be exotic and a hybrid, but also we have southern cattail in the areas in Florida and Texas. There's um, Typha dominguensis, and I and I bring this up because of this cosmopolitan distribution of of cattails, because of globalization and because of potentially global climate change. We're finding anecdotal evidence that Typha dominguensis, a, a species that has been restricted to the southern portion of the United States because of climate. We're finding evidence of it being up here in Wisconsin, and there's another record in Ohio. Now, this is a very early record of these plants being here, but it coincides in the in 2012 to 2013. This is when we detected one population in Wisconsin, in Middleton, Wisconsin, and another one in Ohio. And so we are trying to figure out if some of these molecular markers allow us to identify this southern cattail as something different from the species that we find in the Midwest. Because there has been some evidence um, from the 80s that Typha dominguensis, the southern cattail, can hybridize with latifolia and angustifolia. It's very, very likely that once the species makes it up here, we may start seeing this hybridization happening. These plants are very, very prone. They have a, a very innate capability of hybridizing with other congeners. So so we are expecting that this may be a, a very good way for this plant to, even though it's native to the U.S., it shouldn't be here. You know, it was restricted to the southern area of the United States. So seeing up here, it's a little bit unsettling. And, and, and we fear that this hybridization capabilities will allow it to get established and add to this potential hybrid swarm that we're seeing in the Midwest. I have to add that the southern cattail is not the only one that we have discovered up here. As of last year, we were very successful at identifying one of the very tiny cattail species, dwarf cattails. Mm -hmm. uh, the species is Typha laxmanii. It's a species that comes from, from China, uh, from Asia, and it's used, it was brought intentionally because it's a beautiful ornamental. I always joke that the Midwestern cattails, they, the inflorescences look like hot dogs. <laughs> the laxmanii, they look like the, you know, when you go to a, a cocktail, the cocktail sausages, they're very, very <laughs> tiny. They're very pretty. It's very, it, it, the, the common name is graceful cattail. And yeah. for a reason, it's a very graceful plant. It's used as, as a decorative plant. But we found a population that had sort of escaped cultivation. And so immediately we were able to apply the molecular tools and we identified it as something very, very different from something from the species in the Midwest. So these patches were eradicated very successfully and we're in the process of publishing these results. So so, so the vigilance that, you know, and this was um, Wisconsin DNR actually contacted me and said, we're finding something very, very small. It doesn't look like anything we've seen in the Midwest. And immediately through keying it out with, with people at the Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin Museum, we ended up finding that it was very clearly um, one of the dwarf cattails. 
Yet looking in, you know, looking at these resources, the, the problem continues to be a complicated problem because while looking at the dwarf cattails, we found that there's about 27 different synonyms for these plants, meaning that people call them different things. And so even the naming of the cattail species, knowing that we have 37 different varieties or different species in the, in the, in the world, it provides a challenge because we're calling the same thing different things. And so this begs for, for more molecular work to try to sort of solve or figure out or refine the taxonomy of, of cattails around the world. Yeah, and that's a really good sort of broad scale point to make is that people often either shy away from taxonomy or act like the naming of things is secondary to all the other stuff. But it really makes a difference when you're trying to figure out where things come from, what we should be worrying about. You know, all these questions you just brought up really rely on taxonomy and and so many plants and especially large groups and families that are esoteric or maybe not as uh, charismatic as others that don't get that kind of attention, we just don't know yet. Right, right, right. And and, and so a lot of what we talk about when we, when we talk about some of these uh, cattails is the concept of cryptic invasions and, and the fact that the, the, the cryptic aspect can come from the fact that to the naked eye, you can't really tell the difference between the two, but also because they're native strains and exotic strains of the same species. And, and, and again, we're used to trying to classify things in very um, neat categories. And when these things break down, this is where we start sort of second guessing ourselves. And it's like, are we dealing with a, a set of species that's completely has no boundaries that can hybridize? We have in terms of what we're seeing is molecular, you know, uh, genetic puzzle of all these pieces representing multiple species that are spread out. So, so it's it's a it's a it's a lot of food for thought, you know. And I and I usually bring these examples to my classes as I'm teaching um, ecology or conservation biology or environmental science, and ask my students, you know, we we tend to have a very negative connotation towards invasive species. We don't like them. They they have a very a negative impact on our ecosystem. They decrease biodiversity. Yet from a Darwinian point of view, they're the winners and they're able to figure out a way to be successful no matter what you throw at them. Any different environments, they're succeeding. And so trying to remove that anthropogenic um, connotation from invasive species and sort of looking at them objectively. Yet I think the bottom line here is that a lot of why they're successful has to do with certain behaviors that we as humans have mm. or, or certain practices that we have done that allowed for this globalization and, and sort of expansion. Uh, these invasive species have broken that dispersal filter because we introduce them in many places. And so we have a lot to do with, with, with these species being successful. And so this is where the negative connotation comes in. You know, um, if it was a natural event, well, we could argue differently. But because we know that a lot of these species have been brought in and we're not being careful about what we're doing in, in many instances, these invaders are, are giving us the problems that we're basically facing right now. Sure. And that's a, a, an important distinction to make here is that, yes, science can tell you and help you inform your value judgments. But at the end of the day, value judgments are human applied concepts. But if you think about ecosystem health and biodiversity, these things that we can kind of measure to some degree or another, you can start to see where the detriment 
plays in, and, and you've made the perfect distinction here, is it something we've helped along, or is this something that nature would have done on its own, even if we didn't get involved? And that's a that's an important place to know, and an important place to start at least having a little more nuanced conversations uh, about the invasive species issues like this. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we're, we're not alone. So, so uh, cattails are not alone. Uh, reed canary grass, purple loosestrife, and uh, phragmites or the common reed. These are species that have um, similar problems, even garlic mustard, even buckthorn, um, not only wetland species, but a lot of other plant species, a lot of other invaders that are basically dealing with a situation where hybridization is common, where they're very successful, and where eradication is actually very, very hard. So these are plants that keep a lot of people up at night, and, and we're hoping that by trying to find more and more about these hybridization patterns, what makes them successful, we can start sorting a little bit of these problems out, or I guess that's what I'm hopeful for. I mean, it, it's great. It, I, I will never, I feel like I'll never run out of questions to ask with a cattail group. I mean, there's always something that you can be finding out to make sure that we are not only addressing very ba basic questions about what species, what a species is, but also things that have a, a very applied scenario in conservation biology, which is ultimately what we're, we're, we're trying to, to look into. Yeah, it's amazing to see how this sort of accidental or unintentional question or to set the stage for what you eventually wanted to do initially. Uh, it's, a, it's amazing that such pioneering work has opened so many different doors into so many different uh, fields, I guess, from restoration to ecology to evolution. You know, how often does that actually happen? And did you ever see that coming for yourself when you initially set out? <laughs> no, and this is the perfect example I give to my students. I had no idea I was going to end up talking about this. I mean, I, I was trained as an aquatic ecologist, community ecologist, and, and, and that's great. But I never expected, had you asked me 10 years, you know, 20 years ago, are you going to be working on cattails? I would have said, no, I don't think so. I was, you know, doing a lot of other things. But it's amazing how some of these puzzles that are sort of in front of you sort of kind of direct the direction at, at which you, you, you end up taking. And um, it's research that allows me at a teaching institution to be able to, to train multiple students um, in a lab setting. Yeah, of course, you know, perhaps having a lot more funding and um, really bigger facilities would allow us to do a lot more. Um, by the way, I need to acknowledge that a lot of the, the, the analyses get done in-house at Northeastern Illinois University, but also we have a fantastic collaboration with the Chicago Botanic Garden, which allows us, I'm a research associate there, um, they allow us to, to use their genes sequencer, which, you know, it would be prohibitive for us to have one. And this also opens up opportunities for a lot of other undergraduates to sort of continue work and the networking that happens with, with uh, staff and, and faculty at um, the Chicago Botanic Garden is actually something that I really, really value in, in my career. Yeah, these sorts of things cannot happen without collaborative efforts and, and multiple hands getting involved. And, and that's what's exciting, too, is that it, you don't necessarily have to be on the academic track to make an impact here or to have input or for this to affect you in some way or another. There's a lot of different avenues if you're going to be in the environmental field where this becomes really pertinent and stuff that's really worth talking about and understanding a lot better than we do today. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Geddes, thank you so much for talking with us. If people want to find out more about this work and stay on top of it, how do you recommend they, they find out more about you and your lab and your, your collaborations? You can actually Google Pam Geddes and N-E-I-U, -E and uh, we can list my email address if you want on your website. 
It's p-getus at neiu.edu. And I welcome any feedback and any questions, even if it's from a just discussion point as to what this means. I, I've had really, really great conversations spanning from how do I get rid of cattails? You know, I've hmm. been inundated by cattails to, you know, I knew a friend of mine that used to cook with flour made out of rhizomes. And, and so any of these, um, I'm passionate about these plants and um, I, I really welcome any collaboration or any uh, feedback that people may have about, about these plants or, or ecology in general. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. This has been enlightening. And again, I think opens a lot of doors to questions that people can ponder for years to come. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, It's a great series and I highly commend you for continuing this very important work of disseminating what plants are all about. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right. Well, you have yourself a great day. Thank you so much, Matt. Jeez. Lots of unknowns out there. It's amazing that a common group of plants, something many of us will be familiar with, still holds so much mystery to it. I'm glad people like Dr. Geddes are on the ground doing the work, trying to figure this stuff out, because it's super important. At the very least, we need to have these detection tools to help us make better management decisions going on into the future. So thanks, Dr. Geddes. Keep up the great work. All right, everyone, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. As always, make sure you're checking out everything we have going on at Indefensive Plants. Head on over to indefensiveplants.com shop, pick up some stickers, teespring.com slash stores slash plants, and pick up some apparel and other goodies, and consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash plants. In fact, we have two special shout-outs today. At the producer credit level, we have Brandon and Kat. Thank you, Brandon, and thank you, Kat, so much for donating at the producer level and helping to produce this show that you're listening to today. I could not be doing it without you and all of the other great patrons over at Patreon. Your support means so much to me. Okay, stay tuned. A lot of great stuff on the horizon, and the best way to do that is to hit that subscribe button and consider giving this a review once you do that. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.